There's a whole host of communities out there, a whole host of resources and churches and uh, leaders. Uh, There's a whole movement in the media and uh, literature that's being produced that really is all about a celebration of your freedoms. Some people taking it even a bit further, seeming to want to attract attention by provocative displays of as many taboo topics as possible. I don't know if you've seen the video clips. I don't know if you've heard the, the, the spots, the blurbs. I don't know if you've gotten the mailers to your home, all sorts of things of people flaunting their liberties within their church or their community. And in some cases, it seems intentionally stoking controversy by the extravagant demonstrations of how free they feel to take joy in just about every indulgence that you could imagine for anyone in the world. They seem to indulge in all kinds of traditionally frowned upon activities because they believe it demonstrates their maturity, their uniqueness, maybe, their sophistication, their understanding, and in some cases, their dedication or sincerity in reaching the lost. Those of the community of Christ, those in the church who would actually call for a curbing of those liberties, curtailing of some of those freedoms, are often portrayed as backward, legalistic, irrelevant, self-centered, weak, and maybe the source of all the problems in the church. Well, today we uh, come to a passage that in its own way, speaks right to the scene in which we find ourselves. Speaks to it in a very unique way because it's spoken in a cultural context and a historical context that is far removed from anything that we deal with necessarily in our own nation, in our own time, but deals with it with the same profound principles and the same clarity that all of God's Word speaks to regarding the issues of life and godliness. It speaks to discussions about your liberties and your freedoms and your relationship to laws and to rules, and even beyond that, your relationship to the expectations of other people, of other Christians who are in your life, who are in your church, who are in your family. We've already seen some harbingers of this discussion in 1 Corinthians as we've been going through this. We've gotten a taste of the fact that there was a group of people in this church who wanted to flaunt their freedoms and parade their liberties. Back in 1 Corinthians six twelve, you remember, Paul apparently quoting one of their mottos says, all things are lawful for me. In fact, he says that twice in that verse. But then he adds, yes, but not all things are helpful, and I will not be dominated by anything. And then we'll see in chapter 10, two chapters later here from 1 Corinthians, four chapters, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, four chapters after chapter 6, obviously, Paul will again be quoting the same motto, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, he says in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so you can see that this has already sort of woven into what Paul has to say to this church and to us. And even here in chapter 8, you'll notice down in verse 9 that he has something of a warning for them regarding personal rights, personal liberties. That's really the theme verse of this whole chapter. He's really talking to you and me about the way we should think about things that we feel free to do. Things that our conscience maybe doesn't bother us about, that maybe they did once in the past, or maybe others are bothered by, but we're not. And there's a whole host of things that are related to that in our culture. There's all kinds of expectations from people, whether it is, the kind of things that you do on Sunday, the kind of things you don't do, the kind of ways that you dress, the kind of jewelry you wear, the kind of makeup you do or do not wear or, 
are, are supposed to wear, the kind of things that you eat and drink, whether you drink alcohol, whether you watch certain things, whether you listen to certain music, there are all kinds of expectations that are out there, unspoken and spoken rules, that you and I are constantly navigating and constantly making decisions about things regarding the way that we participate in our culture, for which Christians from different camps and different backgrounds have different standards. And so it's right where we live. It's right on the right in the wheelhouse of where we are making decisions day by day in how we participate in all these activities. What Paul has to say here in 1 Corinthians 8 is said, is spoken exactly to those kinds of decisions. Now, the difficulty for a lot of people is that what he says here, as I mentioned, is so culturally and historically remote. They miss the principle. Because Paul's talking to a group of people here who in their culture and in their time were struggling with the issue of eating meals in pagan temples. And you say, why in the world would you ever do that? Well, because these were the main banquet halls. These were the main dining halls of the day. There were no restaurant chains. There were no, uh, you know, in and out burgers. There was no place to run and get a quick meal. And in fact, normally you would eat your meals at home with your family. But if you ever wanted to do some sort of social activity outside your home that you couldn't accommodate the people, you would typically go to a dining hall that was attached normally to the side or to the back of a pagan temple. These were the largest facilities in town. This is where you'd get a group of people. Some archaeologists have suggested that these were the sort of restaurants of the day. This is the place where people would go and gather in the public scene for a meal. But not just for that, but literally literally anything having to do with the culture normally intersected in these dining halls. So they would host events there associated anywhere from your christening to a birthday to a celebration of any sort to a wedding to a, you know, a holiday or a feast day or a festival of any kind out of the culture, uh, out of the nationality. All of these things would normally take place around these dining halls. And this is exactly what was going on. In fact, we see that in verse 10 of this chapter, Paul speaks directly to it. Look, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? This is all about eating these meals in these temples. Matter of fact, if you keep reading Go through chapter 9, go on into chapter 10. You find in verses 14 through 22 in chapter 10, he comes right back to the very same issue and he has an extensive discussion in 14 through 22 of chapter 10 all about the participation in these kinds of facilities. This was where they were engaging the culture. This is where I should say the culture was engaging them. And it was causing all kinds of problems within the church as people had different ideas about the way that you participated in the culture, the way that you participated in the festivities, the activities of society. What's very interesting is Paul addresses this here, but he's already kind of addressed it one time. If you remember back in chapter 5, he had given... A letter, he had sent a letter to them and told them in the letter that they are to disassociate and not even so much as eat with any so called Christian who has any association with a number of sins and among that list, idolatry. Because you're to separate from those kinds of people. If they have a rep- reputation, if they're known, for, for being associated with that kind of activity, you're to separate from them. A letter that, which, as we saw, was misunderstood and misused by these people, but they had, they had taken these things and they had come up with their own defenses, their own justification for participating in this culture. By the way, it wasn't even Paul only who had said something like this to them. If you remember, there was a significant meeting at the church in Jerusalem, 
It's recorded for us in Acts 15. In fact, if you have your Bible, look with me over there. It took place about four or five years before Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. And out of this meeting of the apostles and the elders of the church at at, uh, Jerusalem, there was produced a brief note, a letter, which was to be sent to all the Gentile churches. And it was basically... uh, giving them permission to abstain from so many of the laws that were being sort of forced on them by the Judaizing elements of the church. But among all of this permission and among all this freedom, they did have one basic request, and it's found in verse 20 of Acts 15. This was what they essentially put into their letter. They wrote to to the Gentiles, or they should write, they should say to the Gentiles, to abstain from things polluted. Say how they polluted. Well, he gives four parallel genitive phrases, exactly parallel in the Greek, that are describing the kinds of pollution that he's talking about. He mentions idols, sexual immorality, things strangled, and from blood. People read that and they think, well, why do, they have to, why do they have to write to them and tell them to abstain from sexual immorality? I mean, isn't that sort of obvious for Christians? Well, yes, it's obvious for Christians. Well, what he's talking about here isn't sexual immorality itself, but abstaining from the association. Things which had been associated with or polluted by or defiled by these kinds of activities. And these were, as a matter of fact, the four things that would have sort of been identified with pagan idolatry. Pagan idolatry, obviously at the core of it, was the worship of an idol, but along with it was all kinds of sexual immorality that was a part of the pagan cult practices, and along with that, the strangling of things and the drinking and and eating of blood These were things which were associated with these idolatrous practices. And so what they're telling these Gentile believers is, don't even associate with these kinds of things or the things which have been polluted by them. They'd already gotten pretty clear instruction, not only from the Apostle Paul, but from all the apostles and from the leaders of Jerusalem. But for whatever reason... Despite the clearly stated dangers, despite the, and by the way, the reason they said that, they go on to say, is that because these things are the very things which would be most offensive and therefore most unloving to their Jewish brethren. But despite all that, these these very clearly spelled out requests, the very clearly stated dangers, there were people within this church who still wanted to exert their freedoms in the culture. They wanted to demonstrate their advancement, their stability, their knowledge, their understanding, their sophistication, their maturity, at least they thought. You remember back in 1 Corinthians 8 now, you remember this chapter opened up with a, a reference to these this food offered to idols. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, and that's the little catchphrase that indicates to us in 1 Corinthians that he's responding to a question in their letter, now concerning this food offered to idols. And he announces or, or opens up by addressing this issue and then sort of digresses to talk to them about the dangers of knowledge. As a matter of fact, he probably quotes one of their statements there in verse 1. We know that we all, or all of us, possess knowledge. That was maybe something directly out of their letter, and he sort of digresses to talk about the danger of sort of making that kind of boast. Paul wants them to consider their actions and, and, uh, and the disastrous impact on someone by flaunting how free they are on these potentially taboo topics, these offensive activities, to consider the fact that somehow they may be, in fact, destroying. They may be, in fact, sinning against, wounding, causing to stumble, brother and sister in Christ. And thus, 
fundamentally failing in the law of love. As a matter of fact, you can see at the end of his chapter in verses 11, 12, and 13, these are the words that he uses over and over again. He talks about a brother in Christ being destroyed, you sinning against him. He says in verse 12, you wound him. He says in verse 13, you cause him to stumble. And so he's really writing this to a group of people within the church. But he's really writing about a group of weak brothers. He uses the word, I think, four times in this chapter, the weak, the one with a weak conscience. And what he wants them to understand, what he really is driving home to them, is he wants them to stop and contemplate in the midst of all their liberties and all their freedoms. He wants them to understand the factors that may contribute to the fall of a brother or sister. In the midst of a whole discussion about what they know and their knowledge and their maturity, he wants them to stop and think, have you ever thought about this? That all these liberties and all these freedoms and all these things that you claim to know may actually be something that that Satan is using to tear down your brother and sister in Christ. That's what this chapter is about. So he spells out a number of factors here that could possibly lead cause a brother to fall. Now, before we get into the details, I just want to read the whole section for you. It's a long section for us this morning, but I want to frame it in our minds before we get into the details. We'll begin there in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better off if we do. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. A number of factors that Paul wants to highlight to them that could possibly cause a brother to fall. The first one he gives to us there right in verses 4 through 7 which is doctrinal confusion. Doctrinal confusion. And he's really highlighting what he will eventually build on, which is the fact that at the heart of every stumble, at the heart of every struggle with sin, at the, at the base of every fall, is a fundamental misunderstanding of truth. And this is at the heart of it. It will be a belief at some level in a lie or a failure to believe or understand the truth. Isn't this exactly what our Savior taught us? Isn't this what He prayed in His high priestly prayer there in the garden when He says to the Lord, sanctify them in the truth. And then He says that truth is found in God's Word. In other words, you're not going to be sanctified. You're not going to mature. You're not going to grow. You're not going to progress in your spiritual life apart from the acquisition, the understanding, the application of knowledge, of truth. And at the point at which you fall, at the point at which you stumble, at the point at which you sin... There is a fundamental misunderstanding about sin, about yourself, about God, about His Word, or about something, or there's a belief in some lie. And this was really at the heart of these people, these weak brothers. 
Paul will eventually say that in verse 7. This is really fundamental to the problem. Not all of them have knowledge. This is really part of the problem. They don't all have knowledge. They don't all understand these doctrinal truths. You say, well, what doctrinal truths? He states them. Beginning in verse 4, as to the eating of food offered to idols, sort of picking up his discussion after his little digression about the the, uh, dangers of knowledge apart from love. He's reminded them, remember, in the first three verses that that, uh, while knowledge itself puffs up, love edifies. Not that they're opposed to one another. Knowledge is supposed to produce this kind of love. We stated this last time, 1 Timothy 1.5, that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a sincere conscience and a, a good conscience, I should say, and a sincere faith. I mean, that's the goal of instruction. Paul prays for the Philippians, you remember? He says to them, I'm praying for you that you would abound in love with all knowledge and discernment. So, so these aren't opposed to one another. Knowledge really ought to be producing this kind of love, but they had somehow formed a type of knowledge that wasn't doing that. Paul comes back after that digression and picks up the, the issue of their question, and he he brings it up, this issue of participating in meals at these pagan banquet halls. A lot of people actually think here in verse 4, he's quoting from them again. We know, just like he says in verse 1, we know that all of us have knowledge. Here in verse 4, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. This was apparently part of their argument, part of their justification is what they maybe had written as a defense, that they had this basic orthodox doctrinal understanding comprised of, of two basic elements, that an idol has no real existence and that there is nothing but one God. And you can kind of follow their logic. Look, if, an, if there are no really other gods, and then there are no things behind these idols. And so when someone does something, bows down to an idol... Really, whatever is taking place is just in their own fantasies, and so nothing really takes place, and so there really is no offense as long as I'm not participating in the actual bowing down to that idol. Paul affirms their doctrinal points. Matter of fact, he probably taught them their doctrinal points. These are fundamental to Christianity. In his Brief time with the Corinthian church, his year and a half, maybe two years together with them. He, no doubt, had taught them this very truth that there is no God but one. And this would have come straight out of the Old Testament. What was the, the, uh, the great uh, point of uh, uniqueness about Judaism was summarized for them in what sometimes is called the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, the word Shema basically means just to hear or to listen. And it's the first Hebrew word from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was the distinctive about Judaism. And this is what they would remind themselves of. And this is what they would proclaim. And Paul no doubt affirmed that doctrine when he was with them. As a matter of fact, it may have become the basis of a sort of creed that he taught them. Some people think that that is what this is here in verses 5 and 6, that this was something he had previously taught them. Maybe he had reduced it down to this statement because he picks up on that Shema. There is no, I mean, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He picks up on the word Lord and he picks up on the word God, which were employed to speak about the singleness and the the, the, the uniqueness of God, and he employs them to speak about the unity of God, but in the duplicity of persons. He says it there in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all things, and, uh, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. I have to admit, there's a lot of temptation for me just to dive into this because this is one of the most profound 
Christological statements that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It's really one of the most clear affirmations of Christ's deity, along with God the Father, that you will find anywhere, not just in these two uh, seemingly parallel statements in verse 6, but even flowing out of his clear affirmation in verse 4 that there is no God but one. And yet that God finds expression in two persons. In fact, in three persons. Paul only mentions two of them here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that truth is fundamental to Christianity. That was something that Paul no doubt taught them and would have been necessary to teach them because they were coming out of a pluralistic and polytheistic society where they had a God or a group of gods for nearly every need, every circumstance, every activity, every consequence. There was a God of love. There was a God of war. There was a God of prosperity. There was a God of mourning. There was a God of death. There was a God of travel. I mean, they had a God for all kinds of things. And so Paul would have no doubt clearly established this when he was among them and gives them this seeming reminder. Yes, what you're saying is in fact true. These are the things that we had affirmed when we were among you. This is exactly who God is. He is only one God, but he finds expression in multiple persons. Wonderful Christology here. Wonderful truths. But that's not the whole picture. Because Paul says, in fact, in verse 7, not everyone has this knowledge. That may not mean necessarily that they had never been taught it. But at some level, at some level, they didn't grasp it. Maybe they... Maybe they had not been taught it. Maybe they had, and it was still taking some time to sink in. But in some, way, some level, in some way, they seemingly couldn't shake their superstitions that were still attached to their old life. I was listening to a missionary speak yesterday morning at a prayer breakfast, and he was talking about how they were doing work in Haiti and how the people in Haiti who had been forced into Catholicism at knife point and had embraced Catholicism and syncretized it with their animistic and polytheistic religions, now had formed a kind of religion where on Sunday they would go to the Catholic Church and they would sing about a God, but then during the midweek they would go out and all the rest of their life would be governed by voodoo. And he would, he would explain, as he talked to them, they would explain that, uh, sure, they believed in God, but that sort of just took care of their their vertical relationship, but in terms of all their horizontal relationships and everything went on in their life, they needed the witch doctor and they needed the voodoo. And when they had problems with their marriage, that's where they went. And when they had problems with their business, that's where they went. And when they had problems with their health, that's what they had to turn to. Even in Christian churches, he tells a story about how people who had come to know Christ still were operating on such an elementary principle. And he was up in the mountains of Ecuador and teaching pastors. And afterward, he asked them, do you have any questions? And they said, well, yeah, we have, we've got a debate going on. We, we were wondering, when did Jesus get saved? Was it before or after the resurrection? You're pastors. Sometimes when people come out of a dark and pagan background, they don't get all the facts right right away. They don't get all the pieces put together necessarily. Sometimes they're illiterate. Sometimes they don't even read. They have to be dependent on what somebody tells them. So Paul's saying, look, not everyone is there yet. Not everyone really understands this yet. Some of them are still holding on to their superstitions and the notion that eating this food was somehow uh, going to cause something good or bad to happen to them. That uh, we might even say an emotional level. This old life of paganism still had a grip on them. And it was out of that paganism in which they had lived their whole lives and they had deep habitual patterns of devotion and loyalty to these gods that there wasn't necessarily a clean break or there was some ongoing confusion still in their life. You and I, we read it and it's simple. But for them, it wasn't so simple. And they still wrestled with these old things. John MacArthur says, 
maybe they know that there's only one right God, but they hadn't yet fully grasped the truth that there's only one real God. They're trying to sort out what they think about the supernatural and about their old life. So they're struggling, Paul says. Struggling because they don't have knowledge. And this is really at the root of their problem. Not just that, though. There's another factor that he now wants to bring to their attention. And that's the possibility of a defiled conscience. Defiled conscience. He says in verse 7, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. That's very important for you to grasp what Paul's saying here. He speaks about their conscience. We all know what a conscience is. That's that thing that God has built into us, which is a sort of a warning sign, a sort of siren, if you will, in our hearts and minds that tells us whenever we're getting into something bad. It's the warning sound about whenever we're approaching something that we ought not to be doing, and it is really a God-given thing, Romans tells us. God has given that to us as an aid and a benefit. The problem is that your conscience is only as good as the information that you put into it. It's something like a computer. You have a computer, it can have all the the uh, equipment in the world, but if it doesn't have the right program, it's not going to perform the right function. And so a conscience is only as good as the information that you put into it. And if you feed it the right kind of information, it becomes a reliable guide, a reliable sort of stopgap from getting you into trouble. As a matter of fact, the Scripture speaks about a conscience in this way, and it refers to it as a good conscience. A good conscience is a well-informed conscience. That is a conscience that has spent time digging into God's Word, sitting under the teaching of God's Word, meditating on God's Word, being informed and programmed by God's Word. It is a good conscience in that sense. And a good conscience, which understands the right things and then lives by the right things, is referred to in Scripture as a clear conscience. That is, you know the right things, and then you live by those things. And a clear conscience, a good conscience, and a clear conscience are two things that are mentioned in the pastoral epistles as being vital for church leadership, not to mention the rest of us, right? He says to deacons, need to have a good conscience. He tells Timothy, he's got to guard a clear conscience. Make sure that he holds on to a clear conscience. Make sure that the things that he's learning, he doesn't go against those things. He doesn't teach his conscience to ignore itself and its warning systems. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's a different kind of conscience that the Bible speaks about. It's called a weak conscience. This might be the opposite of a good conscience. If a good conscience is a well-informed conscience, then a weak conscience is an ill-informed conscience. That is to say, it's not well-taught. It's not well-grounded. It doesn't have a good grasp of theology or of the Scripture. It doesn't have a good grasp of the application of those things. It may be in the beginning stages of gathering the data, but hasn't put all those things together in how that's supposed to work out in their understanding of God or their conduct in their Christian life. This is a weak conscience. And the problem with a weak conscience is it's being, it's being the governing standard for someone's life, but it's, it's using all kinds of distorted standards in that process. And so people are approaching activity which may very well be approved by God's Word, but they're feeling pain in their conscience. They're feeling remorse in their conscience, when they approach or they participate in those kinds of activities. And it can be all kinds of things. It can be old Sabbath kind of associations and the kind of activity you shouldn't do on a Sabbath. It can be the kinds of things that you drink. It can be the kinds of things that you eat. It can be the kind of places you go, the kind of things that you watch, the kind of things that you wear, the kind of ways that you talk. All of these things. People still have uninformed, 
understandings about exactly what God's Word says in that particular area. Paul brings us up here. Brings it up in verse 7. He says, look, these people who don't have knowledge, their conscience is weak. Where they stand. But worse, he says, not only being weak, weak, they may, in fact, become defiled. So, well, what does that mean? Well, a defiled conscience is simply when someone when someone becomes so deeply involved in an activity, their conscience is telling them not to. And they tell their conscience to shut up. They ignore their conscience. The next time they go around, that conscience, the voice or the, uh, the, 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 the alarm, the, the pain of that conscience is weaker. And it gets weaker and it gets weaker the more and more they ignore it. More and more they go into this activity. See, the problem is, it's because their conscience is weak. There is no clear delineation between activities which are not indeed sinful and activities that are. And all they have is the filter of a bad conscience that's giving them confused signals and now they're even ignoring those signals so that not only are they being more prone to engage in gray areas, but now even in the black and white areas of sin, they're ignoring their conscience more and more. You know, that's not the only thing the Scripture says about a conscience. It says not only can you have a weak conscience, and Paul talks about here a defiled conscience, but it even mentions one other kind of conscience. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is what he says. He says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars, or some versions say hypocrisy of liars, whose consciences are seared. You know what's seared? You know, you ever, you ever seen seared skin? You ever been to the branding of an animal? Where they take a hot iron and they press it against the skin of an animal and smoke flames out and the stench of that flesh being literally cauterized to the point where it becomes absolutely seared. And when it's seared, it no longer has any more sensitivity. You can go up and you can touch it and it's just like a numb piece of your body. You don't feel anything. And what he's saying is this happens in some people's conscience. See, they go down a pathway and there's something going on in their mind that's saying you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, and yet they've got something that's prodding them down that pathway, maybe social pressures or maybe some sort of confusion, and they ignore their conscience and their conscience gets weaker and weaker and weaker and more defiled and more polluted until one point, one day, There's absolutely no more pain, no more sensitivity, no more warning. At that point, they are in the danger of absolutely no breaks in whatever activity they're in. This is a factor. This is a step, and Paul wants them to understand it. See, they may have actually been encouraging this kind of activity. In fact, everything seems to be saying here in 1st, Corinthians 8 through 10, that was in fact what they were doing. They were actually felt like it was their job to prod these weak believers on down this pathway. And Paul says, do you not realize, don't you understand, you might be defiling these people's conscience by encouraging them to do something which they are having conflict in their own heart and their own mind about doing. By the way, if you have your Bibles, look over at, first, at Romans chapter 14 because Paul addresses this same issue over there with very similar terms. He says in verse 14 of Romans 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, 
but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And notice what he says down at the end of the chapter in verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith, sin. This is what people do. They go into some activity and they're doubting. They're drawn into some activity, probably by friends, probably by peer pressure, probably by, by some external pressure, but all the internal pressure, all the internal signs are saying, stop, don't do that. And rather than drawing back and keeping their conscience strong, Rather than going out and strengthening their conscience by doing more study in the Word of God. They just try to turn their conscience off and move forward. The problem is, one day, it won't be a gray matter. It'll be a very clear matter of black and white. Sin and not sin. And you've taught yourself to ignore your conscience. So Paul says, you need to be aware of this. You need to understand the factors that contribute to the fall of anyone. You know, by the way, you and I are all in that process. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how long you've been in the church. I don't care how much doctrine you've been under. You are still in the process of strengthening your understanding and strengthening your conscience. You're still in the process of understanding what God's will is in so many different situations. And isn't it true for those of us who've been in Christ for 20 or 30 or sometimes 40 years, that some of the things that used to bother us when we first became Christians no longer bother our conscience. That is to say that we have become more well-informed, and so now we can participate in things that one point we couldn't participate in. But isn't it also true that there are some things now that you would never participate in that you might have in days gone by? Because you've grown. Because now you understand that issue in a better way. You understand its dangers. You understand its implications. And so we're all in that process of strengthening our conscience. We're all in the process of growing stronger and stronger and more robust in the way that we understand all of these things. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting to me that Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And then he leaves it for a while. And he comes back two chapters later to address it once more. If you'll look with me at chapter 10, he comes back to this issue in verse 14. But he doesn't speak to it now from the issue of loving your brother. He speaks to it in a more fundamental way, in a, in a way that calls more decisively for them to flee all association with idolatry. Why? He says, because in verse 15, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants at the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. So he's affirmed everything that he said so far. But... I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see, these people thought they understood an issue. They thought they had knowledge. They had some proof text. They had pulled some verse out that gave them some sort of justification and said, see, now I can do this. Paul understands that they're not yet done in their understanding. That there are things associated with idolatry, particularly demonology, and the grip that it uses, that it grabs with people, the grip that it, it, it has on people, that sometimes it has because of their participation in, in idolatry. So Paul will even take them a step further strengthen their conscience so that something they're not even bothered by right now 
he will say to him eventually, it should bother you. It should bother you. That's an instruction to all of us. To keep growing. To keep learning. To keep studying. To keep informing our minds as to the will of God. Never to settle that you have it all figured out. Well, there's one more we need to get to quickly. Not just the doctrinal confusion, the defiling conscience, but Paul will ultimately tell him that the the linchpin, if you will, this is sort of the climax of his point here, the linchpin in the fall of these brothers is a destructive example, possibly from you. Lives that are impacted by the way that you live. So we often talk about these gray matters, these issues where maybe the Bible doesn't speak clearly to something we think, or maybe it's kind of debated. And what do we normally do? We normally talk about how it might offend, right? Well, it's, well I wouldn't do that because it might offend somebody. Well, once you frame it in that, that, that terminology, the next inclination is to say, well, they just need to get over it. If they're offended, they just need to get over it. Or if they're offended, it's too bad for them. Or they ought to grow up, or whatever it might be. Well, let me tell you, Paul doesn't even bring up offense. This isn't about offense. This is about influence. And he's saying you may influence them. You may change their behavior. It's not that they're just going to be upset about you. It's not that they're just going to be sort of grieved and and bewildered about you, or they're going to go to bed sad this, uh, this evening. That's not really even in the purview of what Paul's saying. He's saying, you want to know the real danger? The real danger is that they might mimic you, that they might actually go out and try to do what you're doing. And here they are with their weak conscience and their increasingly defiled conscience, and the very thing that's going to cause them to ignore their conscience one more time is you. And he wants them to understand this issue. So he sort of comes back in verse 8 and he says, look, food will not commend us to God. That might once again be one of their quotations. We're no worse off if we do eat, no better off if we, excuse me, no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. Perhaps all of this is their their own argument, their own justification. But Paul gives them a contrast in verse 9. But take care that this right, that this liberty, that this indulgence of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in a temple's eat, uh, idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak basically to do the same? He will mimic you. You will influence. As a matter of fact, these Corinthians might have had that as a goal. They might have actually thought that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be living large, flaunting their freedoms, trying to shake these backward Christians out of their old fuddy-duddy ways, trying to shock them into new realities. They may have, in fact, thought that's the virtue. Paul says, no, it's the vice. Because they may, in fact, follow you, but leave their conscience behind. The danger in that, he says, in verse 11, is by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, brother, whom Christ died. We all would understand the tragedy situation. Some, someone came along and tried to deface a Rembrandt, tried to smash a Michelangelo sculpture, tried to bust up a Stradivarius violin. We'd all feel some sense of loss, some shame, some maybe even criminal activity. Paul saying, look, this, this brother, this sister, the work of God. We are his workmanship, Ephesians tells us. Created in Christ Jesus. Christ died for this brother or sister. He gave his life. He sacrificed his life for this person. And you are going to destroy them so flippantly. Simply in the name of your rights. 
Paul's conclusion in verse 13. There is no freedom. There's no indulgence. There's no food. There's no drink that's worth that. He says, he says there, look, if, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again, lest I cause him to stumble. Over in Romans, he says it this way. If it is good, he says, not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Look, you and I have to resolve not to take the grace of God that's been taught to us, not to take all the knowledge of God that's been given to us, not to take all the good gifts of maturity that the Lord has given to us. You and I have got to resolve not to take all those things and throw them back in the face of our Savior and say to Him, I don't care for who you died for. I'm going to live my way. I'm going to enjoy myself. Look, if you want to flaunt something, if you want to have some extravagant demonstration, something that would penetrate the world and show them that you're different, why don't you flaunt your love? Why don't you show an extravagant demonstration of your love for one another? An extravagant willingness to set aside all your rights, all your privileges, set aside all those things. You understand the work of Christ is so precious in the lives of your brothers and sisters. That's maturity. That's knowledge. The kind of knowledge Paul says we need to have. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful for this sobering reminder and this penetrating message. We who so struggle with so much cultural activity and the social things that we're involved with, Lord, we need wisdom. We need understanding. We pray that you would grow our conscience and give us the joys of freedom and liberty in our minds so that we can worship before you without guilt, and without shame. Lord, never let those freedoms and those liberties become something that becomes the enemy of your work the lives of others. We can only pray, Lord, that you would teach us love, you teach us all this other knowledge. The truth of love would be married with the truth of every other doctrine that we learn. And that the, the demonstration, the flaunting, the flamboyance of our life would be a flamboyance not of our freedom, but of our love. When we do that, be like our Savior. In His name we pray.